Hi everyone, welcome to the Black Nature Narratives podcast. I'm Beth. In this episode, I'm talking with Catherine Egland, Chair of the NAACP Environmental and Climate Justice Committee. Catherine is a veteran civil rights activist who took her earrings off and stepped into environmental justice activism after Hurricane Katrina devastated her home community. Just five years later, the BP oil spill contaminated the same area. In a current campaign, she raises awareness of how UK import practices aimed at reducing emissions are negatively impacting black communities in the southern United States. Catherine's journey into activism was greatly influenced by her experiences marching with Dr Martin Luther King and attending the funerals of her community leaders, Vernon Damer and Medgar Evers, both of whom were murdered by the Ku Klux Klan. Listen in to hear Catherine's insights as an elder whose work has fought for principles of environmental justice to be held as inseparable from civil and human rights. So I'm really excited to be here today with Catherine Egland, who is the chair of the NAACP National Board of Directors Environmental and Climate Justice Committee. It's really great to be with you, Catherine. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. You have such a long history within the civil rights movement. Um, Perhaps we could start by just um, having an overview and understanding of how you came to be involved within civil rights and the kind of work you've been doing. Okay. Well, actually, I tell people when you're born in Mississippi, you're born in the civil rights movement. Yeah. Uh, That's the Deep South. It is, um, most people say, the heart of the civil rights movement. Mm. And do you mind sharing which decade you were born in? Yes, I was born in the early 50s. Mm -hmm. Uh, So... um, so I grew up um, in a segregated South yeah. yeah, and was very involved, since I was 10 years old, involved in the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Was that through the church or...? Actually, it was. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it was through the church. There were two organizations. Uh, I was involved in the youth NAACP and the Catholic Youth Organization. And my Catholic, my Irish Catholic priest happened to be my one of my NAACP youth advisors. Ah. <laughs> so I grew up in the civil rights from a faith-based perspective. Yes, yeah. And what were some of the issues you were encountering early on in, in the work you were doing with the NAACP? Uh, early on, growing up as a youth in the youth NAACP, it was all about, as I mentioned during our session on yesterday, um, it was a struggle for human dignity. Mm-hmm. Um, just the dignity of uh, to sit where you wanted to sit, to be able to enter a, a restaurant, to be able to drink out of a an unlabeled water fountain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You showed a very moving picture um, in, the, in the presentation. Uh, I guess we're moving ahead to work in environmental justice, but, yes. but making the comparison in that fight for dignity, um, the work you engaged in in the 50s and the 60s is actually still very close to the work you're doing now uh, related to environmental justice. Yes. Uh, certainly um, in the photo on yesterday, I show where the struggle used to be about... Um, the, the water fountain being labeled colored and white. Mm. Um, and I, I always remember this growing up, that the water fountain labeled white 
always you could see the cold condensation from it because it was cold water and then the colored water fountain was not cold. Mm -hmm. uh, now the concern has shifted to whether the water is as clean um, in the communities of color as they are in the white neighborhoods. Yeah, so the discrimination is more than simply which fountain you can use, but actually the quality of the water coming exactly. from. Exactly, yeah. yes. Yeah. So shall we talk a bit about how you got involved in environmental work? Um, yes. Um, I, I guess I, if I can go back and say... Uh, my sister is actually a scientist, mm. and she um, um, was actually one of the first African-American females. Um, she came out of college, and she worked for the Mississippi Department of Environmental Quality. So she was more or less my first role model, and I knew that what she did was very important. Mm. I didn't understand it all. You know, that was her yeah. thing, but I was... An, had this very intellectual awareness about uh, environmental and climate. Yeah, I did stuff that, you know, I could say I was doing my part, like with recycling. Um, but then, actually, it was more or less just a conversational awareness, yeah. uh, something that I could talk about, and it wasn't anything that I was really doing a lot about, aside from, you know, maybe not using styrofoam products or... Uh, or as I mentioned, recycling. Um, so it wasn't until Hurricane Katrina mm. um, came and it was the moment that I always tell everybody that, that was the moment that I took my earrings off. Yeah, and, it um, got real. Yes. <laughs> yes, it, it, it had literally blown down my front porch, not blown down my front door to my home. And um, so it was real and it was time to take action. And uh, along with that, because I was able to rebuild my home, but I did lose two of my dearest family friends uh, to drowning during Katrina. Because it's devastating. Really. And I, I know that Mississippi, as, as well as being uh, the center of a struggle for civil rights, is also the center of a struggle for environmental justice. Exactly. In an area particularly vulnerable to climate change. Yes. Yes, um, I, uh, Mississippi is right in the center of the five Gulf states, um, and we are more climate vulnerable than any of the Gulf states are more climate vulnerable in, than any other region in the nation. Mm -hmm. um, so you have uh, uh, not only that, but there are economic vulnerabilities uh, that end up resulting in a lot of uh, environmental racism mm -hmm. as far as placing of uh, facilities uh, that cause harm or uh, emit toxins to communities. Mm -hmm. That um, predominantly black areas are chosen to be the sites of industrial plants and... Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Uh, and of course, they will never come out and say it. Yes. Uh, we've even asked our uh, Department of Environmental Quality. Um, I, I attended a permit hearing, and uh, it, it was just obvious to me that, oh, they look like they permit everything, mm -hmm. you know. Um, this is all based on economics, so it doesn't matter if the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed, you're going to get permitted. And uh, one of the um, 
uh, people on the permit board said, well, nobody wants it in their backyard. So that prompted me to write and, and uh, submit a list of questions to them. So whose backyard, how do you decide who, whose backyard it's going in? And do you keep a record of it? First, I wanted to know um, how many permits have you denied? And they said they didn't keep a record. Can you name a few? Mm -hmm. You know, can you give an estimate? No. <laughs> and, um, you know, just where where are these permits? Do you do any mapping? No, we don't do. Maybe we should, but we don't. Mm -hmm. So um, that's really one of the priorities is that I'd like to see is where where is this being permitted? I think that would be yes. an interesting map. Having that initial data so you can make the analysis of whether there are disparities about the communities yes. being affected. Yes. Mm. Our conversation here was interrupted just briefly as we were discussing the placement of industrial plants and the NAACP's work in mapping how black communities were disproportionately affected and the importance of data to prove discriminatory practice. So we were talking about the importance of data to be able to start to look at the map. Yes, um, and um, we've asked for some information from MDEQ and then the Freedom of Information Act, mm -hmm. and we have not received it yet. So, um, and then some they claim they don't have, and they possibly may be telling the truth, maybe they don't have it, mm -hmm. but, um, we will ask for it and ask that they do get it. Mm -hmm. Because I don't, uh, in Mississippi, nothing really changed um, without federal court orders. Mm -hmm. And it might be that that will be what it takes yeah. in order to, um, in order for us to resolve our environmental yeah. issues. That you have to take it to court before people cooperate and, and provide the data. I think they will have to be exposed. Um, they, um, I think that they deliberately, um, even though they say they're transparent, mm -hmm. they are about as opaque as you can get, mm -hmm. and they deliberately withhold information, and they don't want to know where this permitting, they don't want to see the map. Yes. Because uh, I, I truly feel that it will come up and show. I know in the area where I live, that's where all the pollution, mm -hmm. um, uh, all the permitting uh, uh, takes place in these predominantly um, low-income and communities of color. Um, they recently permitted um, in a very historical neighborhood. They permitted um, an inland port. And just to show you a big difference, uh, that port uh, they're going to put chicken freezers there. And during Hurricane Katrina, the chicken freezers were on the site of the port of Gulfport. Mm -hmm. But during Katrina, they overturned, created an unbearable stench. Mm -hmm. It was awful if you went anywhere near that area. Well, on the beachfront, you have more wealthy people. Mm -hmm. So they didn't dare put the freezers back right. on the beachfront. So they applied, and they've been trying to bring the chicken business back, uh, but they needed the freezers, and they needed to place them somewhere. So instead of putting them back on the beachfront, they have an inland port right in the heart of uh, predominantly um, African-American community, and so that's where they're going to relocate. So that environmental disaster, the crisis of Katrina, 
sounds it became an opportunity to reorganise um, yes. how polluting uh, infrastructure were placed. Yes, and, and this plant is on the site of an old fertiliser plant. Mm. Uh, where there, so it's still contaminated. Uh, once they start the construction of this, you, you know, you're going to have uh, lead and arsenic. Um, they, this community, it, the port will be running 24 hours. You're talking about noise pollution. Mm. So you're talking about really lowering the quality of life of that community. Yeah. So I understand that Katrina was a turning point for you personally in becoming more involved in environmental justice. Yes. For the NAACP, um, how long have they as an organisation been involved with the environment um, as part of the civil rights movement? Um, the NAACP has had policy on environmental and climate justice dating back to 1971, mm-hmm. early, early 1970s. However, we just established a program department 10 years ago. Right. And we pretty much hit the ground running. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Jackie Patterson was the first, uh, our first director. I'm the first, I'm the inaugural chair mm-hmm. of that committee. So we've had the work cut out for mm-hmm. us. Um, the, um, <clears throat> the NAACP turned 110 years old this year. Mm-hmm. And this ECJ program department is 10 years old, so mm. trying to infuse another civil rights into a 100-year-old organization yes. has been most challenging. Yeah. What have been the challenges? Is it um, the, the cultural change within the organization? Uh, it's not so much the cultural change. There's a lack of understanding, and um, so we've made a lot of progress, but um, I'd like to see us get to the point to where people understand and look at environmental and um, climate justice as fundamental as the right to vote. Mm. And I just don't think we're there yet. Say a bit more about how it's fundamental to the right to vote. Um, Well, you know, the the right to clean air and clean water is very fundamental. I mean, it's an intrinsical right. Uh, It is a human right. Mm. And um, our traditional, what I call bread and butter, civil rights issues, criminal justice, um, you know, political equity, economic um, equity, um, all of those are issues that we've worked on all along, so Mm -hmm. people pretty much understand them. Um, There are some parts of environmental and climate that may be a little more technical, a little more complex, um, and it takes a little more time to understand them because it's not anything that you are readily exposed to as it relates to the science Mm -hmm. and the terminology. Um, So so local communities um, perhaps not being familiar with the the scientific jargon of the uh, academic communities. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. and, and not really know uh, the dangers that comes from um, volatile organic compounds, yeah. uh, you know, lead, arsenic. There are just some things that, um, it, you know, it, it can be if you don't have, you know, some type of training, and it does take a, a bit of training. I know it has taken quite a bit of training because mm-hmm. as soon as I 
get one thing down pat, here comes another mm -hmm. that I'm having to study mm -hmm. and, and become familiar with. And I don't have a science background. I'm mm -hmm. not a scientist. So, um, but fortunately, I do have an education background. Mm -hmm. So I am able to, once I understand it, I can turn it around and, and I'm able to break it down and help other people to understand it. Yeah. What are some of the the big issues you've been working on I know it's been so much work you have been doing in this area perhaps some of that, the highlights um, whether because of the impact it's had on the community or because of successes you've had in doing the work um, well one of the things that um, five years after Katrina and I live less than four blocks from the beach four blocks from the Gulf of Mexico Five years after Katrina, I could walk out my front door, and I'm looking at the sludge from the BP oil spill. Oh, gosh. So here we are working with that. That was um, not shortly after we established our Environmental and Climate Justice Program Department within the LACP. So we did work with congressional officials. We did travel um, to several states, listening to people, uh, looking at how they were impacted where I live in Gulfport, we have um, um, quite a contingent of, of Vietnamese population, and they do a lot of fishing in that mm -hmm. area. So just like Katrina, we were able to look at uh, some of the impacts as it relates when you have disasters, whether they're, um, at that time, we um, had just encountered one of the greatest uh, climate disasters in history, and then five years later, one of the most, one of the, you know, worst um, environmental disasters. So you look at things like um, domestic violence goes mm -hmm. up, you know, when, when you have this job loss and then the way it impacts people emotionally. Yeah. And um, there was a study done where you could see the rise in domestic violence, mm -hmm. you know, the drinking, People can't provide for them, mm. their families, you know, it impacts them emotionally and so it impacts the entire family. Um, and then um, not long after that I found that there was a filling coal plant literally outside my back door, <laughs> less than four miles from my home. Mm. Um, and if that were not enough, um, we were having to contend with being ratepayers uh, in this huge experimental carbon capture sequestration plant uh, that was grossly mislabeled as clean coal, mm -hmm. and they still mislabel it as clean coal. Uh, but we had some success. We were able uh, to work within a coalition, um, and we were able to have the coal plant shut down. Incredible. That's and, incredible. Um, actually, and we were up against, people told us it couldn't be done. They would never close that plant down. And then you had the energy companies going out to the communities saying, why don't the NAACP stick with civil rights? You know, what are, what are they doing? You know, they're following behind these elitist white organizations who don't care anything about people. They just care about birds and trees. And they shouldn't be working with them. And they're going to cause people to lose their jobs. You're not going to have dependable electricity. They went to the faith communities. Mm -hmm you know, with this message. And then the faith community came back, well, are you sure you know what you're doing? Are you sure you're not listening to other people? And so 
we kept on, you know. And that victory gave us incredible credibility. Yes. Because not a single job was lost. Wow. <laughs> no one ever flipped a switch mm -hmm. and didn't get any electricity. So they realized that, you know, that was kind of a dividing couple. Yes. So it became a workable solution. That yes. The factory didn't have to close, but the human health had to be considered. Exactly. And then we told them, do you really think that they would have stopped burning the coal if, if, was, if it was as safe as they were claiming mm. it was? Mm. Because they kept telling us, oh, we're up to date. We're as safe as all the new plants. I'm aware that you're working on issues that affect um, local communities in the states, but also um, are international, uh, particularly a connection to Europe. Yes. Do you want to say a little bit about some of the work you're doing around wood pellets? Yes. Um, we um, were not aware that uh, until recently that they were proposing to build the world's largest wood pellets manufacturing plants in Loosedale, Mississippi. So there are a couple of companies who um, have uh, um, almost a monopoly on the wood pellet production in the southeastern U.S. And they're destroying our forests in order to uh, make wood pellets and ship them mostly to the UK. So the UK are trying to get their emissions down, trying to meet the, admirably so, mm -hmm. trying to meet the terms of the Paris Agreement. I do not for one minute think that it was a deliberate attempt or that they knew about or even know now about the human rights abuses um, and that while they're getting their emissions down, that it is increasing, uh, you know, or is imperiling disadvantaged populations in the southeast and yeah. U.S. What are the issues it's creating for local communities well, in the U.S.? Well, first of all, um, they're destroying our forests, and every time they cut down trees, um, they're releasing decades if not centuries mm -hmm. of stored CO2 emissions mm -hmm. into the atmosphere. Um, they're destroying the wetlands which will mean increased flooding yeah. in communities. Um, the cutting down the trees will produce silt which is going to increase sedimentation in the water mm -hmm. which is going to contaminate water supplies. This is going to impact communities within a hundred mile radius uh, of that plant. In the process, I mean, it's a very, very toxic process to mm -hmm. manufacture those wood pellets. Um, so they emit tons of volatile organic compounds mm -hmm. into the atmosphere. Uh, again, that's going to affect not only people in the immediate vicinity, but also people within 100-mile radius. So all of this is imperiling these communities and then people in the UK get to boast about yes. having their emissions down. Yeah. And to me, that's a human right offense that I don't think should be ignored. During the Industrial Revolution, the UK turned a blind eye yes. to the cotton trade. Mm. And these are the same states. Yeah. More than that, we profited <laughs> yes. by exploiting. And these are the, the same states 
um, that are involved in the wood pellet. Yeah. Um, these are states with lax environmental standards, mm -hmm. economic desperation, the most climate vulnerable states in the country, and the most with the most disadvantaged population mm -hmm. and the largest percentages of people of color. Mm. I was shocked to hear of, of what's happening. Um, as you say, it allows the UK and Europe to present themselves as, as carbon neutral. Um, I think we're more aware of, of stories of uh, the destruction of the Amazon for the sake of uh, the Western world. And perhaps um, there's a feeling that we've improved, we've stopped doing that. We know it's wrong to import timber from the Amazon and, and other places in, in the South. But I think, well, certainly for myself and what other people might not be aware of, is we've then just shifted to exactly. the exploitation of still poor black and brown communities, but in a more developed area of the world. Exactly. Um, but it's the, the same demographic being impacted. It's black and brown, poor communities. Exactly. And I don't know, I, I think when the idea of the wood pellets came about, it was thought to be carbon neutral. Mm -hmm. It is a renewable source of energy, but certainly anything but carbon neutral. Yeah. And it's very harmful, the manufacturing process. So the UK, and, and now, uh, from my understanding, in talking to people from the EU, uh, countries in the EU, even the burning of it is not as carbon neutral as it was once thought to be. So I, I think that at some point we need to go back and, and re-examine this and, you know, again, admirably so, we're in a race against time here. But we have to look at our energy mix and make sure that we're not trading one hazardous... Yes. <laughs> um, you know, one hazardous type of energy usage for another. Yeah, and it sounds to me that it's not just uh, a process of offsetting carbon, but actually it's offsetting harm from one community exactly. to another. And we still haven't found a way of um, providing health for the planet and for our populations. Yeah, a lot of people will say, oh, we need a just transition, and that, that's going to be quite a little catchy word, mm. but just is justice you know yeah. it's part of the word justice so it has to be justice based and if you are committing human rights atrocities in the process mm -hmm. it is anything but just yeah Catherine uh, what's next for you in the NAACP where um what would you like to see in terms of um environmental justice being part of the wider conversation within um, environmental conversations? Oh, wow. Um, unlike a lot of organizations, we don't have the luxury of choosing between climate justice and environmental justice. We have to deal with it all. So um, a week from now, I will be in Newark, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. um, they have been in the middle of a water crisis. Mm -hmm. um, I was in Saginaw, Michigan, which is near Flint, Michigan. Um, and Flint, Michigan is still dealing with their water crisis. Yes. So that's something that's systemic. Yeah. And it's extraordinary how long that's been allowed yes. to, to go and on. And it's not just those mm -hmm. 
just those cities. There are other cities, again, with very high percentage of minority population. And um, so we don't have the, the, the privilege or the luxury of, you know, not addressing all of these. So we're having to address this local to global. We have to look at these local issues as it relates to the environmental uh, issues as well as tackle climate change on a, um, a local, national, and international level. Yeah. I can hear that part of the discrimination is the multi-levels and layers of uh, the fight for human dignity, exactly. uh, rights and justice, that they aren't compartmentalised, they can't be separated. Exactly. <laughs> um, it was really powerful. You talked about your experience marching with Dr. King. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder if we, we go back to, you mentioned being a 10-year-old at church, and perhaps if we talk about some of your influences um, within the civil rights movement. Sure. Um, as I mentioned, my Irish Catholic priest happened to be, also was one of our NAACP youth advisors, and if you would ever go back and look at the Sovereignty Commission files, and that was where in Mississippi, it was like this sophisticated CIA where they spied on people. Uh, mm-hmm. And then they have in there about Father Peter Quinn riding around with a bunch of, I think they call them Negro teenagers, mm-hmm. <laughs> riding. Uh, and they said that, you know, they were just riding. But no, we were monitoring boycotts and, mm-hmm. and, and monitoring picket lines. And um, so whenever Dr. King would come to Mississippi, of course, he couldn't stay in a hotel. Most of the time he would come and stay at the rectory with our Irish Catholic priest. So I grew up with that type of influence. Um, I grew up um, as a very young teenager knowing People like uh, Megar Evers and uh, Vernon Damer. I lived in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And I used to go by his store. That's how I learned how to drive at a, like 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. I'd go out in the country and, and we'd always stop by his store on Saturdays. And then for his store and home to be firebombed, you know, that was somebody that I knew and I would see. And all of this was very real. Uh, to me, and I, I recall um, as a child going to his funeral, I went to the funeral of Megar Evers, and I knew that their death was something about making my life better, and I made a commitment at a very young age that their death would not be in vain. Yeah. So it was um, when you get to meet people like that and like uh, Dr. King, and you get to talk to them, and you get to march alongside of them, it really makes a difference. You know, you know that you have to pay it forward, and you cannot let their deaths be in vain. Mm. Your lived experience, your lived history is so powerful. Um, you use the word real, something very real as I, I sit with you and hear your experiences and, and learn about who um, you were connected with and how that's inspired you. Um, I'm connecting that to the environmental justice movement and, and knowing this is real, this is um, incredibly important. Um, in and the I name draw of- on those experiences. Mm. I, I can remember 
when I was marching um, um, at the huge climate march that we had in New York, uh, I think back in 2015 and um, or 2014, and I was to speak at a tribunal that we had the next day, and I had these remarks repair and as I was marching and I saw all of these young children out there marching it took me back <laughs> yeah. to when I was marching for civil rights and I got back to my hotel and I tore that speech up mm -hmm. and I said no I'm, I'm going back here yes. and I talked about Dr. King in, in the marching and and I you know and I wondered you know just if he were living today, I knew he would have been part of that march, and, you know, and I know he'd have a speaker that would say something like, fossil free at last, fossil free at last, thank God one day we're going to be fossil free at last. Absolutely. I, there was uh, recently a, a speech release that um, had previously been unheard or it had been lost for a while, and it's believed he's talking about reparations, and he references lands and the importance of yes. lands. Um, and, and it is inspiring to think that were he still alive, this would have become part of the cause. Exactly. It's incredible work that you are doing. Um, I look forward to hearing more about the work of the NAACP in this area. Okay, thank you. Thanks so much for your time today. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Black Nature Narratives. Check back soon for new episodes. If you're in the UK and want to be part of a community of people of colour gathering in nature in real life, sign up to wildinthecity.org.uk for updates, events and membership. To support this podcast, visit our Patreon page or the link below.